Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, In Search of Shipkey La, and the author is John Pollard, and John joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, John. Hello, Stephen. Nice to speak with you. Well, great to have you on the show all the way from Australia, uh, near Sydney. You live near Sydney. Yes, in the suburbs of Sydney. Oh, in the suburbs. Okay. Very, very good. Well, this is a mystery thriller, international mystery thriller, taking us into countries that are in the news all the time today, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Uh, we're talking about going into Iraq. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it is one of those types of stories that I think could be on the big screen. Let me just read a couple of things you've written about it, and you say this. The book details the mysterious disappearance of a young American Vietnam War draft dodger who for a while in 1968 was hiding out in Afghanistan. And then, of course, the, the whole story resumes 35 years later in 2003 where they think maybe they have found a clue, I guess, to maybe they can find uh, their lost son. That's the idea, yes, yes. Okay, well, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, obviously, get to know the characters and some of the plot. But why don't you give us a little bit about your background, John, how this book all came about. I mean, you're quite a traveler. Uh, yes. Uh, I, the main uh, tra uh, travel that's involved and, and led to this story was a journey my wife and I made driving from Wales in the United Kingdom to uh, Bombay, as it was then, Mumbai, in India in 1968. And uh, at the time, uh, I uh, thought... Uh, some of these remote places um, were very interesting but also quite dangerous and I wondered what would eventuate if someone just disappeared in one of these places and that gave me the initial idea of writing a book that took 45 years to get around <laughs> to doing it. Well, we're glad you've uh, finally taken on the big challenge and here we have the book that gives us a glimpse of some uh, remote places that well, especially this name, the title, Shipkeela. Tell us about Shipkeela. Why did you, you know, that's that remote place, I guess, where someone could disappear. <laughs> well, Shipkeela is a pass between India and Tibet, and Shipke is actually a town just on the Tibetan side. La means pass. And uh, uh, when we were driving through northern part of India, uh, I saw this minor road or track leading up into the Himalayas and thought this would be interesting to explore. So we followed this, the, that track, but uh, um, about 100 kilometres from the, you know, about 100 miles I think it was, from the uh, border, we were stopped. It was a military zone and we weren't allowed to go any further. And the 
the place has held a fascination for me um, ever since. We actually went back in relation to writing the book um, in about two years ago uh, just to check how things had changed there uh, in the region. We still weren't allowed to go to Shipkila itself, but we got within uh, about 20 kilometres of the of the border um, and uh, um, found it just as fascinating, although there were many changes to the valley too where the Sutlej River flows down from the Himalaya. So it gives us uh, this unusual settings that's particularly Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, you know, in remote parts of the Indian Himalayas. So uh, how much detail do you go in in the book of, of, of really describing these unusual settings? I think quite a, a bit. I mean, we described the, the situation in several countries before Afghanistan, uh, but in Afghanistan it was before the Soviet intervention and later American intervention in uh, uh, Afghanistan. Um, and it was quite a wild place in those days and quite dangerous. Uh, we managed to go up to up to the Tabamian where the famous Buddhas were, but they were um, destroyed by the Taliban many years ago, and it brings tears to my eyes when I hear about the destruction of these magnificent uh, ancient uh, monuments. Um, uh, so the roads were very rough. The car took a, a very big battering. Uh, again, in 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 uh, Pakistan, the uh, um, the, the Peshawar was a very wild town in those days. We didn't really re realise how wild it was, and part of the story um, um, starts or uh, uh, um, turns out to uh, um, take place in Peshawar, and then uh, crossing into India, um, the, the Shukila route. Uh, is a little more accessible these days, but getting to Shipkila still is well nigh impossible. Well, let's talk about some of the central characters. Let's pick out, why don't we start with what you would say would be the main character? The main character, um, well, it could be the, 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 uh, the couple who, are, um, who are assist in the resumed um, investigation 35 years later. Uh, that's uh, Ruth and Hugh Webster, who are Sydney siders who happened to be travelling through the region when the um, young American disappears, Dan. And uh, uh, so they'd be the main characters, but also we have the um, investigator, Andy, uh, who's new on the case, because the previous investigator is dead. Uh, it's the same company. Uh, they'd be the main characters, and uh, how it happens is that uh, the widow, uh, of, or the, so the widowed mother of Dan, still you know worries about the disappearance of her son. She happens to get a letter from a West Australian friend who has just read a book written by the uh, uh, by the Australian couple Ruth and Hugh, and uh, uh, passes on the information that these people seem to have been in Afghanistan around the time your son disappeared. That's how the story starts. So there's this hope that Dan is still alive and, and they're hot on the trail with the help of Andy. Um, well, yes. I mean, no one really knows whether Dan's alive or dead, but most likely since he's disappeared for such a long time and uh, the Vietnam War period is long since gone, he presumably is dead, but uh, the widowed mother wants to try and find out what right. happened to him. 
Yeah, she can't live without, I guess, just uh, knowing. Uh, you know, there has to be some kind of uh, a conclusion to this uh, whole story about, I mean, like any mother would want to have some kind of uh, of conclusion to it. Closure. Yeah, yeah. closure. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah closure. So... Uh, obviously, along the way, they must uh, meet some uh, rather dangerous situations? Yes. Um, the dangerous situation really emerges after they've um, re um, returned to sh the Shipkila Road and investigated, um, um, trying to find out what happened and trying to find people who might know what happened in that region. Uh, but the more dangerous bit um, occurs later when they discover that someone, the chief suspect, has moved to Bangkok and owns a bar in a rather dubious area of Bangkok, and that's when the danger really starts. Why did it take 45 years later before you wrote the book? Uh, well, I was very busy um, at the university teaching and researching. Uh, I had a family of four children. Um, we've now got seven grandchildren. Um, I was just a very busy person, and it was when I was retired that I thought I could sit down and, and complete the story that I had uh, envisaged um, 45 years earlier. Are you suggesting to your readers that uh, this kind of uh, journey, this kind of adventure, is uh, something that they might want to do? Uh, I think so. I think that's probably part of the story. I mean, uh, I've made, we've made two other adventures um, uh, since then. Uh, in 19, 1999, we drove the same car, which turned 35 years old, in, in Tibet. We drove it up from Malaysia, uh, Laos, China... To Beth, out into Mongolia, Siberia, to London, um, and uh, as I said, it celebrated its 35th birthday in Tibet. Uh, and we did another one with, uh, and set this next one uh, actually with another couple driving a different vehicle from Vladivostok to London over five months. So um, a lot of people like to read about these things. Probably won't have the opportunity to do them, but uh, uh, and some might like to try to do it too. So this character that has the bar in the, uh, let's see, where does he have the bar that, that made? Oh, in Bangkok. 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 Is, yeah. does, is, is he the antagonist in this? Um, he is, um, but I won't say too much about how things emerge. It will spoil the story, I think. Sure, but, sure. But uh, he, he, he happens to be the main suspect and uh, a number of other um dodgy characters um, um, emerge at the same time. So are we, you know, are we talking about uh, some illegal kind of uh, activity, drug trafficking, or or even worse? Um, I guess the answer is yes, although it doesn't come out entirely clearly. The story leaves a bit of that um, as uh, um, unsolved. So we've got Mystery and international intrigue, and of course, uh, taking to uh, taking us into these very remote places and unusual places, countries that are in the news today. Uh, what else can you tell us without giving away, you know, some unique aspect of this that would just give us a, a little bit of a, a picture in our mind of what is uh, happening here? Oh, that's difficult to say without giving away too much of the story. <laughs> um, 
I, you caught me on the hop there, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I think I might prefer to leave that question. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Well, you, you know, we've talked, uh, you know, given a lot of information here that would give the overall view of this kind of really could happen, as that's the, you know, that's the premise of, of the story. There could be this kind of disappearance, especially in this very, very uh, remote part of the world, Ship Key La, in search of Ship Key La, that's the title, and we've been listening to the author John Pollard from uh, the suburbs of Sydney, Australia. John, uh, best thing I can ask at this moment is how do we get your book? Uh, one can get in various places like Amazon Books and so forth, um, but also uh, checking through Ex Libris. So you can get the copies. It's also available um, um, electronically too, if, if, if readers prefer to do it that way, um, using uh, Kindle and so forth. Certainly, certainly. Well, thank you so much, John, for being with us on Ex Libris on Air. Thanks, Steve. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Fish Factory, the story and life of a young man and his daring mission as a Marine in the Aleutian Islands during World War II. And the author is L. Gilbert Payne, and Gilbert joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Gilbert. Good morning. Great to have you with us. Uh, 
This is fiction, a lot of uh, ties to your brother, which we will learn about uh, and how all this book came about. But let me just read what you've written for everyone's information in general. It's the story of Matt Stover, a young man raised on a cattle ranch at the base of the Teton Mountains in Idaho. And, of course, he enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, to go to war in the spring of 1942, and he's placed in a special ops program, Unusual Circumstances, and he and an Aleut shaman are placed on a little island in the Aleutian chain to foil a Japanese plot to launch unmanned flying bombs at Dutch Harbor and, of course, threaten the U.S. West Coastline. So, um, a lot on fact, but uh, obviously Matt Stover, a fictional character. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Gilbert, how this book all came about. Well, my mother would tell you that I had a wild imagination as a child, (laughs) and I'd done my best to try and make sure she was correct. (laughs) We lived in the country, and uh, uh, I was born during World War II, so in my play, which at the most time was uh, uh, in a, along a creek over the hill from our, our house, I would imagine myself uh, in war situations or that type of a situation. And the Aleutian Islands come to mind because uh, we had two of the men in our town, be it small, that served their time there during World War II. And so as uh, I thought about, uh, as I was growing up and I thought about these things, it was easy for me to put myself writing a story about the Aleutian Islands in World War II, the only place that the Japanese ever landed where they were on American soil. And uh, the bravery of, of Matt took over as he was part of the effort to remove them from American soil once and for all, which to the American government, American people, was really a, a major thing at the time. So uh, it was kind of fun to get into that uh, thought and to work it. Um, I really enjoyed the mountains and the Tetons. It was a, a good setting for Matt, I thought, to um, to grow up in. His, uh, his life was almost innocent and pure, even though that's not what we're implying in the book, due to the, his surroundings, because he was being raised on a cattle ranch, uh, not in a large population. Uh, of course, he went to school and done those things, but uh, his father and and a uh, World War One uh, Silver Star uh, winner, a uh, recipient, Silver Star recipient, and Purple Heart winner uh, tutored him, and and he he was taught a lot of things that other other young men didn't have the opportunity to learn, and that set him up for what became this mission to help rid the Japanese from American soil and uh, stop this plot that they had, which was a t- spinoff from the uh, Germans and their flying bombs that they rained down on uh, London. And um, as a matter of fact, their uh, motors for their bombs, had the jet, the jet motors, had come from Germany prior to the war. So that's what sets the book up. And then um, from there, uh, Matt's adventure is is interwoven with the Aleut Shaman and uh, the uh, method that the, he and, and the people surrounding him in the military uh, work out to 
make it so that the bombs not they they do not reach their destination in Dutch Harbor, but they turn out to sea because of what they do to modify them. The one thing that uh, Captain Anderson wanted so desperately was not to go in and just blow them up. He wanted to to make it look like the bombs had a flaw in the system, uh, so that they wouldn't realize it. If we his statement was that if we went in and just bombed or just blew up the bombs. Uh, they would know that we had destroyed them and they could just start over again. He wanted them to believe, the Japanese to believe, that the bombs had a flaw in them and they couldn't make them work. Therefore, we wouldn't have to worry about them doing it somewhere else at some other time. And so this is what Matt accomplishes. And it turns out that uh, his adventure is intertwined with Al, the foreman on his dad's ranch that was the Silver Store recipient, his father's training... Uh, his love for his mother and his family and his country, and then probably Premont at that time in his thinking was not to let down uh, his commanding officer, which was Captain Thompson. So good parenting is a very important part of the theme of this book. It is. Uh, I find it sad that that all young men don't have the opportunity to be raised as Matt did, and I uh, I wish that that they would have that opportunity of, of being given uh, responsibilities and places to exercise responsibilities and be mentored by their father and by someone like Al. Uh, it's, I've, I've worked with young men my whole life. I not only was a uh, scoutmaster for 12 years and worked in Boy Scouts, but I coached Little League for 20 years, both football and baseball, and um, I've seen many, many wonderful young men that that wasn't quite able to get their life down the road that they could have had had they had a better start in life. And I feel real bad for those. And I'm kind of hoping if any any young man were to read this book that he may see it's important to uh, stay committed and do as Matt has done and and, uh, it'll lead him to good things. And patriotism, it is what it is, and it is uh, something to aspire to. Yes, and I... uh, in the book, I wrote a part that I think would describe that really good. The scene was at the December 7, 1941, at the outbreak of the war when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. He comes in the house and his family, his mother and his dad and his, oh, see, his grandma and grandpa wasn't there yet. They're out of town. But the mother and dad was huddled at the radio, the old radio, listening to the report that President Roosevelt gave of the bombing of Pearl Harbor and that we were going at war. And at that point he was committed there was uh, the patriotism took over you knew in reading the book that uh, soon he was going to be part of that war so your decision to bring in this Indian sort of uh, witch doctor this Aleut shaman uh, how did that all come about um we've been my wife and I have been fortunate enough to, to go to Alaska uh, a couple times, three times, and and uh, it's in their culture. Uh, when you go up there, and, and we're always interested in uh, cultures and things of that nature. And as I've seen in the stores and that we're in, the, the articles and the magazines and that uh, about their uh, beliefs and their Aleut shaman and their, his powers, uh, both uh, healing powers and spiritual powers, I thought it would be good to let him be uh, the the person to bring this threat out 
and he actually contacts uh, the American uh, military and tells them that something's happening on this island because the Japanese have come in and uh, they have killed the men and taken the women uh, in captive to serve as, as their uh, cooks and washermen and do their washing and in the slavery, basically, and that uh, when he reports that, he tells them that they're they're building something or they're putting something together there, and he does he does a sketch of the flying bomb, which which gets everybody concerned. But because it's an elude shaman, and uh, that's all they really had to go on. The military wasn't too sure how much effort they wanted to commit to going down and finding out what was really happening there, which turns out to be were it successful, a really big deal. And I've, and I've been quite successful in, in the book, by the way, I might just interject, and having people believe that uh, that's a true story. I've had several people that's read it say, oh, this is a true story, this is someone's account, right? And I'm going, no, it's fiction. I tried to make it realistic enough that as you read the book, you're going, wow, this could really happen. And so anyway, as he uncovered that and said that this possibility of, of that they were doing something, he drew a picture of the flying bomb, and uh, Washington, D.C. wasn't too excited about having much done, but certainly the people that uh, he's dealing with was, and that's how come they uh, decided to send him down there to be with the shaman and try and find out what was going on, and then they would deal with it at that point. But as it turns out, uh, given the, the his capabilities and his upbringing and all his... Uh, he's a very intelligent young man, which is how he ended up in special ops. And uh, he figures out a way to foil this thing so that uh, it's a success, and the Japanese believe that they have a, a design problem rather than the, the Americans just come in and destroy the project. The shaman does have some mystical powers of of, of sort dealing in the with book, the mind. He's a, he's, in, in the book, he follows his tradition. Uh, his father was a shaman, as was his mother's father, a shaman. And they had the Bear of the North, which, as we know, is the polar bear, is uh, their power. So when the shaman uh, chooses and, and the need call, calls for him to uh, exert his shaman powers to the fullest extent, he appears to be a polar bear. And, uh, and uh, he has certain things he can and can't do, which is explained in the book. Uh, mm -hmm. Just one example, uh, he can't be the shaman and be the religious leader as well as the mentor in other areas if he commits murder. So the, he's not allowed to use the bear's power to kill. But uh, we put a twist on that in the book where he's able to make people, make the Japanese, see the bear and, and actually kill one of their men that uh, abducted one of the women. Um, thinking it was the bear. So we, we put a twist in there that's quite, it was fun to write, but uh, in reading the history of the Aleut Shaman and the people up there, it could be very realistic that someone, that he could control your mind, that someone could believe that. Now, we choose not to believe it, and that's everybody's you know, own right to, do, to choose whatever they wish. But uh, for them, I, I think there was a time when they believed things like that to be very true, and, and maybe still today for all I know. Another theme in your book, often, you know, we we may look at things and say, you know, that's impossible and I, that I can't do it, but you're really uh, presenting a, a, a story that 
is that impossible things can be done. Yes, uh, in the fish factory, when they're at the fish factory, I should say, when they're training, um, I, I alluded to the fact that they won the right to uh, try and, and steal the owner code book, which had never been done, which is in a guarded building. When they succeed, the, the commanding officer says, you'll wonder, he's speaking to the group of young men that are going to be trained. He said, you wonder why we do this. But he says, all of you will have a point in your life when you'll be asked to do something that's deemed impossible, and it's your job to look for the flaws in uh, whatever it is so that you can make the impossible become real, and you can do it and achieve whatever your mission is. So he makes it very clear. Uh, all of them that's in special ops will probably be facing a seemingly in impossible task one day, but he expects them, they're expected to figure out the flaws in it so that they can accomplish their mission. And what may seem impossible because of the situation, the main character, Matt, I guess he knows that he has to help these women escape their Japanese captors. Well, that was kind of a, that was a surprise to him. Uh, he was thinking, he was geared up and thinking all the way through about stopping this threat with the flying bomb. Well, when he gets on the island with the shaman, the shaman tells the women that are captives that Matt's going to help him escape. <laughs> He just threw that out, <laughs> and uh, he knew because of his upbringing and the young man that he is that he did have to do that. So his first priority was to, of course, make it so the bomb appeared to have a flaw in the engineering, and then he actually had, he knew he had to come up with a plan to uh, help the women to escape, and, and the reason for that, I might add, is the Japanese had already made it clear that... Uh, once they left Latula Island, uh, they wasn't going to leave anybody there to tell their secret. Uh, they were going to kill the women. So he said, he makes a statement in the book, uh, the one woman the, that's um, his helper in it, this Anna, she says that the women were very grateful and they knew that they would be, uh, that they would lose their lives if he didn't rescue them and that, that they were so grateful and that she made a statement, I can't remember exactly how I wrote it now, to the effect that uh, they appreciated that he stayed and, and rescued them a lot, and he, and he makes a statement. He said, well, I could have not done that. You know, it just wasn't in his makeup not to, to have rescued them. We've been listening to L. Gilbert Payne. He's the author of his book, The Fish Factory, the story and life of a young man and his daring mission as a Marine in the Aleutian Islands during World War II. Gilbert, tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, obviously you can order it through Exlibris. Uh It is also online. And uh, I don't know what, uh, we're still in the early publishing processes, so I don't know exactly what bookstores or uh, places of that nature that it's going to uh, show up. But uh, if they watch for it, they'll be able to see it soon in those type venues as well. But for now, if uh, you wanted, you could either go online or certainly you could get it through Ex Libris. Thank you so much, Gilbert, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Well, thank you for the opportunity to let me tell about my book. I, when I write in my book for the, the people that have copies, I always write in there that I hope they have as much fun reading it as I did writing it. And I mean that sincerely. I really enjoyed writing about this young man, and my promise to everybody that, that gets the book 
is that I know, or I promise you, that you'll end up liking Matt Stover and maybe even seeing part of Matt in your own self and in your own lives. And if so, that's a good thing. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on DougieNet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is A Woman Named Jackie. And Jackie is spelled in a unique way. J-A-C-C-H-I. I welcome Jackie Makito to the program. Welcome, Jackie. Hello, Jay. Thank you. Tell me about this book. It is somewhat autobiographical, if I'm understanding the concept, but there also are some fictional accounts included in your narrative. Uh, yes, there are. Um, it's a, it was a 10-year effort on my part. Uh, here and there, I would remember parts of my childhood and tried to write everything down that I remembered, but then I went into the workforce and kind of forgot about the book for about two or three years, and then... Um, took it from there after and just started every once in a while entering something into my diary. And that's how it came about. The spelling of your name, J-A-C-C-H-I, has its origins from Japanese heritage, correct? That's, that's correct. And yet you speak with a Cajun accent. How did that happen? I do. Well, I was born in Louisiana. So if you're born in Louisiana, particularly South Louisiana, you will have somewhat of a Cajun accent. I've never been able to get rid of it, um, and I don't think I want to. I like it. <laughs> well, it's charming. It's charming in its own way. Thank you. Tell me the story behind the story. Uh, what does the, the book entail? What's it about? It's a, it's a very, I think, extraordinary and, and, a, and a shivering account that brings the reader from past, present, and future to a, a kind of a, a fascinating truth. Uh, not a lot of fiction told in the, in the haunting tale of Jackie. J-A-C-C-H-I. She is a kind of a transparent entity. She belongs to her God, and um, I believe it's going to create an indelible imprint on readers. I think so. She she weaves a tale of love, hate, and envy, and really murderous attempts to stamp out bloodlines, and kind of incinerate the spirit of the beautiful ancestral line of a, of a woman that only wanted to be loved and to love. Jackie abounds of religion, mysticism, life after death, voodoo practices of the South, and occult workings 
uh, of people that are trapped into beliefs and prejudices of long ago that are still felt today in our country and particularly in the southern uh, half of the United States. Um, spirits and souls of the departed circle the air of those uh, that are entrapped in the workings of the novel. Um, and it's kind of lusty and sensual. Teases all senses as, as tears, hate, and, and some cheers pierces the soul of the reader. So I think that the faint of heart needs to be wary if they're going to read this book. So those who would be most adaptable to embracing this book, probably it needs to be at least a PG-13. At least. I, w- I would ask you to read an excerpt, but perhaps not today. Perhaps not. <laughs> How long did it take you to put your book together? Well, when I actually started putting it together, uh, it took me about mm, to put all of the parts uh, in perspective, probably about a year. And you had been... But it's a very short novel. It's not a very long novel. 131 um, pages, yes. It's short. <laughs> and you'd been accumulating information and details that you had planned to put into a book for a while then. Yes. And who is Marta in your book? Um, Marta is actually um, the baby in the book. Uh, that's how Jackie's big things came about. Um, Marta is a baby that was found along the bayous of the Bayutesh. Uh, Marta was abandoned um, by a, a young lady that had an illegitimate child and didn't want the public to know about it, so she left it under a tree. Um, and the baby was found by a, uh, a African American little old lady who didn't have any children, and took the baby in and hid it from the world so she could hide it uh, no more because she then died. Um, and Jackie had to uh, Martha had to come out into the public work world and make a life for herself. Is that based on a true occurrence in your history or in history of people you know? Yes. Yes, is. This, is, this is based on an occurrence that my, my grandparents and, and some great aunts of mine told time after time after time, so it became a truth to me because I didn't have any way of knowing nor records to prove uh, that they were wrong. Um, and they, they each told the same tale over and over again, even moving to different parts of the United States when I would go to visit them, they would tell me the same story. So um, that's how that's how this came about. Like, how did I begin? You know, what happened? You know, who is who is Martha? And so that's that's how that started. And that's one of the key characters in your book, in your novel. Yes, she is a key character. How would you introduce this book to someone who doesn't know of you or your writing? Well, I would say that anyone that is interested in um, securing um, any kind of knowledge of their heritage and who's been puzzled by where, who am I, where, where am I from, how did I get here, um, who are my parents, my great-grandparents, um, why do I look so different? Um, and if you're curious at all about w- where you come from and who you are, I think this would be a, a pretty good start book. For you, because then you you could realize, as a person just doing research, how many different nationalities nationalities could be in your uh, past, and that's what I came to realize. In introducing this book to someone that doesn't know you, uh, what do you think is the most charming or outstanding event that uh, you outline in your book? Hmm. I would think um, the beginnings of Marta. How she evolved 
um, that's the crux of my story, creates the character Jackie. That's that's how Jackie came to be. Um, that's that's uh, from that day forward with all the other characters in the book and all of her relatives. Um, the woman Jackie became uh, such an iconic figure in my life that that's how I would say that that's, she's the most important character. It would be the Martha, the baby. And that identifies a lot of who you are, your foundation. As a, that's exactly right. As a heritage. What makes your book different from others out there in the marketplace? It's a it's a very um, different account of um, someone trying to do a, an autobiography of their past because it goes from the past to um, the present, kind of dives back into the past, comes back into the present, and then goes on into the future of what may be. I don't know how many books would do that, but mine kind of jumps back and forth until you finally realize what the plot actually is. And um, and that's what I wanted the reader to see, how many different paths your life can take before you become to be the person that you are. You've also included a lot of photos in here. Which photo yeah. do you think is the most interesting? Um, let's see. Oh, i got a lot of photos. <laughs> the drawings, the actual... Um, uh, drawings you can't see very well in the book because they're in black and white, but uh, the drawings are my own. Uh, I'm also an artist. Um, the pictures are pictures during uh, my lifetime that I've taken of some of my um, special pieces that I've collected of Native, Native American art treasures and Japanese art history, um, uh, just different things that I that I still keep in a special room of mine, kind of like a sanctuary of the different uh, statues that I've accumulated and things that I believe in. They're beautifully done. Your 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 illustrations are charming and, and exquisite. You've done a wonderful job Thank there. Thank you very much. What was challenging about putting your book together? Was there anything that was difficult to go through in looking at your past and your present and your future? The start and stop of the novel um, started off when I found a diary of mine. Um, and I thought, wow, I wrote all this when I was like six years old. I started writing different things that I remembered um, and sort of um, found notes from my, my relatives, my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents of what they believed to be truth of what was happening during their lifetime and their lifetime before them. Um, and when I started, it was start-stop. So I would start a little bit, and then I would go into um, kind of a hibernation state because I couldn't go forward because I had work, I had school, I had all this stuff. I had a child. Um, and, 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 you know, by and large, I got to where I could just, you know, okay, this is it. This year I'm going to finish this novel. And that's, that's what happened. Tell me what you think is the takeaway message from your book that life revolves around a series of challenges that you face um, as a child, um, as you face growing up as a teenager, um, as an adult, and then finally in your silver years um, that you're going to go into the future with and what you hope will be a life um, from the beyond that you can envision as a person now that you've evolved all these years 
what does life hold in the beyond? And to me, it's God, you know, and, and God permitted me to go through all of these life's challenges to be where I am today. So the end of your book, the message is there's positive hope for your future. Oh, there's definitely positive hope. I'm experiencing it right now. Wonderful. Well, I hope that's because you're visiting with me. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> the title of the book, again, is A Woman Named Jackie by Jackie Makito. Thank you for joining me today. Where can I get a copy of your book? You can get a copy online um, into Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Um, and, or you can walk into any of the larger bookstores, and I believe that they will have a copy or they can order a copy for you. It comes in paperback and hardback. Have you been challenged enough that you might want to write an additional novel? I'm definitely going to write an additional novel, definitely. But I don't know when I'm going to start it, but <laughs> I'm going to take a lot of what's happened in this book and bring it forward. Fabulous. Well, we look forward to perhaps visiting with you in the future about your next endeavor. Thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate it. Jackie, thank you for visiting with us today. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.